Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone, and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have someone that I think we're going to be able to learn a lot from. And what I like as well is the fact that he's actually he was born and raised out of out of the U.S. So without further ado, Eugenio, welcome here to the Deal Maker Show. Alejandro, thank you very much for having me. So right after college in Argentina, you started your first company. So what was this business? Yeah, so a very good friend of mine, we did uh, school together for many years. And um, we had this idea of, of uh, bringing, building like a mobile CRM. And um, at that time, it was like a really u- unique idea and, and certainly was very advanced in Argentina. You, you, you know, you have to think that there was no internet, there was no connectivity as we know it now. And so we developed this uh, software to, you know, help uh, help businesses run, you know, their, their contacts, their their deals, you know, follow-up opportunities. And so we built it on the on a platform that was uh, the HP uh, 200X. You know, if you recall that, it's a very old platform. We also built it on the Scion um, machines, a British uh, company that built like essentially like early, very early PDAs. And it was amazing. I mean, the product was great, um, but uh, we were not super successful as a business for, for various reasons, right? But that was the idea. Yeah, I mean, I remember that in in some um, speaking engagements that you have intervened in, you you said that this was a failure. So I think that at the end of the day, uh, I, I always say that you really never fail as a founder. You either succeed or you learn. So I guess yes. from from a learning experience, what did you really learn from this? Yeah, I really like uh, how you put it. You know, I I think uh, in those same terms uh, in retrospect. When but one of that's what that was one of the things that I learned was like that there's actually no failures. At that time, it felt like one because you know we didn't uh, we didn't succeed in building a company in achieving what we wanted, which was like you know growing and and continue to develop the product and. And so the lesson learned was that the first lesson learned was that you know building a company is so much more than the product, and yeah. uh, that the product is that the full experience that customers have with you. And there, you know, as a, as an engineer, my my partner at that time 
um, he was at he's a you know same same school same background. We were both engineers, and we had this um, you know arrogance that nothing but product you know the technology was as important. And so we didn't really have any notion around sales or marketing or you know any other aspect of the of the business that is absolutely uh, uh, mandatory for, to be a successful long-term company, right? And so we didn't focus really on that. We didn't have any any mentors. We didn't surround ourselves with people. It was it was hard. So to our defense, Argentina is not particularly, or was at that time, wasn't a, a particularly business friendly or entrepreneurial environment. So there's no the same um, the same support systems that we have today or other countries have, like you know programs for 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 entrepreneurs or you know, mentors. So we were essentially on our own and we, we learned the hard way that, yeah, it's a, it takes more than just uh, knowing how to code and building good software. You have to complement that with everything else. I hear you. And I, and I love the fact that you say that because the build it and then they would come mentality never works. I think it's a, you just need to sell it first. And then if you sell something, then you figure out how do you, how do you deliver? No. So, uh, yeah. I love that you mentioned that. So, uh, going a little bit now into the into the journey. So, this chapter now is it comes to an end, and then eventually you land in in, in Microsoft here in in the US. So, so how did this, this happen? Yeah. So we, you know, that didn't work out. I joined uh, um, a couple banks in South America, and then so I was I was working in IT and in, in software, but in a, in a business where software is like a means to an end. It wasn't like a an end in itself. And it was a great experience. You know, I, I learned how to build, you know, solutions with um, with uh, business requirements. And then I, I, but also the criticality of those systems, right? So we would, I was working in systems for, you know, um, e-banking, home banking, phone banking, uh, where like uh, availability and quality were, you know, were important. And then one day, you know, Microsoft was never in my list of technologies to use then. Um, in those uh, in those places, it was all you know Unix or mainframes or other 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 stacks, but never Microsoft. And uh, one day I got a call from a from a recruiter, and, and you know we were, we were chatting about you know what I what I wanted to do with my with my life, and he said like, well, what will be the dream company for you? And I said, well, you know, I'm a I'm an engineer. I I love solving problems, but I I would love to work in a in a company where the, the actual end is the technology, right? So the core competency is technology. And so as I said at that time, you know, I would love to work for a company like Sun Microsystems or Microsoft. And and it, it turned out that it was for Microsoft. And so I joined uh, Microsoft Argentina, actually. At that time, there was Microsoft South Cone, Chile, um, Bolivia, and Paraguay. And... Uh, Essentially, my job was to convince people like me that Microsoft was ready for building enterprise software, right? So that, that we, that Microsoft had a stack and had a platform to deliver the quality, the availability, the reliability that companies like the banks that I was working on before had. And and um, and this is the time of you know the .NET framework was uh, being released, you know, the big push for, you know, SQL Server as, a, as an enterprise-grade database. So it was a great experience because my first two years at Microsoft was in the field. 
was like working with customers face to face and helping them implement these like large, large systems. I traveled a lot. I was in Spain. I was in the UK. I was in Central America. And one of the projects took me here to Redmond in Washington state. And, uh, you know, people here knew me and, and essentially I, I got an offer to join what at that time was part of the Visual Studio team. So Visual Studio is a big, it was a big, big, large team. So I was part of one team that worked on essentially architecture, you know, uh, guidance for building the type of solutions that I was doing in the field. But, you know, my job here was to capture those best practices and the patterns that would lead to, you know, high quality applications. And that's, that's what I did there. Got it. And as they say, a founder is always a founder. So at what point did you decide, I'm going to explore this, this place called yeah. Founder Institute to see what it's all about? Founder Institute, yeah. So, you know... Um, because you I, did Founder yeah. Institute like before you actually gave your notice and went fully at it with your, yeah. with your next venture. Yeah. Let, me, let me tell you um, a little bit of the, of the story there. So... Look, I, I was always an entrepreneur. You know, I didn't know, but I, I had it in my soul. You know, it was something that I always wanted to do. Even within Microsoft, you know, with the constraints of being in a big company, which that it's already, like, things are already defined, uh, I found a, a place where I could do, like, you know, experiment and go and think out of the box and try new things that were not tried before in, in at Microsoft. So I, I kind of learned a lot there. I, I am I am super grateful to Microsoft for everything that um, has given me. And, uh, you know, we, but I always wanted to build something. And so my wife in, in around 2012, my, my wife uh, and I were discussing about, you know, next steps and risk. And, you know, I have two boys and we have a family and a mortgage like everybody else. And, you know, Yes, it would be great to start something, but um, she actually encouraged me to to get out of Microsoft and learn about, you know, what is it to build a company from scratch? And so um, together we found this, you know, the Founder Institute, which is essentially a program that allows you to do like a, like a school at night. It's almost like going to school, at, you know, after work. And so every Monday you go there and they, they bring experts in, in branding, in marketing, in uh, business plans and, you know, go-to-market strategy. So everything else that is not necessarily just product, that it's, you know, the, where my biggest deficits were. So I learned quite a bit there. I, it's a program like where you essentially, at one point, if you don't achieve certain goals, you you are you know you have to leave so you cannot uh, you cannot stay if you don't get like sufficient points or which was totally fine i i didn't quit you know but i was kicked out and and that's fine it was uh, it was a good very good experience and i am also very grateful because they taught me a lot of the things that then later i applied here and yeah. so um at the end of 2012 i already made the decision and uh, we sat down, I sat down with my wife again and said, well, you know, uh, I'm 42. I can, I can see myself staying at Microsoft forever because, you know, it's a great company. 
we make you know good money um, we live a good life and uh, but i will always always regret not doing this so i will always look back at my life one day and i will be like well i should have i should have done this i should have done this and i don't want to be a member of a i should have done club you know i want to be a member of the i shouldn't have done that more than i should have and so in retrospect one of the, my reflections was like looking back at my life i've made a lot of mistakes and i made a lot of things that didn't work out but i don't regret any of those not even my first uh, company with you know my friend rudy you know that was a uh, in retrospect it was painful that then but i am also grateful that i that i did it and so i said like i'm going to do this and i'm going to give myself one year uh, she actually helped me put a, like a little framework in place she's very analytical she's a financial analyst so you know she's numbers and Right. frameworks and and uh, and she she helped me put together um a framework for you know measuring success and measuring like m- these key milestones in our journey and so i gave gave myself one night one year and after a year i my commitment was to essentially i did it i tried and i will go back and find another job or i will continue on the journey and Got that's it. how we started but one thing, one thing that I thought it was really interesting is that I remember you shared in, in one of your speeches, you share a video where you're receiving a little bit of harsh feedback, right, from, from yeah. some of the, and it happens, you know, I think that, you know, you always need to really listen to the constructive criticism because the people that tell you that, you know, your idea is fantastic, you don't really learn much from it. Yeah. But I guess for you, it was obviously the second time around, you know, you already came from this kind of like past experience that probably looking back, you know, it, it just, you know, had like that sour feeling and, and that level of risk that maybe, you know, now with having a family and everything, maybe it was just like a different phase for you. But I think that hearing someone tell you that this is a massive market, but that you are not the right person that is going to be able to tap into this. How after hearing that feedback, you actually say, you know what, I'm just going to continue to push. I'm going to give my notice and I'm going to make it happen. Yeah. Well, I, he said two things, right? So the first thing that he said is like, this is a real problem. And uh, there's a business to be made here. And so that was the first part of the feedback. The second part of the feedback was like, you are not going to do it. I don't see an opportunity for you, you personally, to tap into this opportunity. And, you know, I think he was right. He was right, meaning that I alone could not have done this, would not be able to do this. I have to... And that's kind of complementary to the same lesson I learned in my first venture, right? Which is like, I need to surround myself with, uh, with the right people that complement what I am not good at or I don't, I'm not interested in doing and not have a passion for. And so, you know, building a team was like my number one priority early on. And it's like, I am going to focus on the things that I do well and my partner is going to focus on he, the things that he does really well, but I already knew that that was not sufficient. And so from day one, we, we were on this quest that it has never ended, really, which is like bring people to the adventure um, that would make us a team, right? It's like um, um, an essential component of, of success. It's like 
bring the right minds. Uh, there's always somebody that is passionate about things that you're not. And you don't have to be passionate about everything that is required for a business. And so, you know, that was uh, that was it. And um, so you, you, you actually started. So I guess, you know, finally Auth0 comes to fruition. Yeah. You decide to go at it. You give your notice. And the company starts with five team members. So who are these team members that initially are there with you behind the trenches? So it was uh, primarily uh, a group of developers. They were all distributed. So from day one, we were a, a distributed company because I was here in, in Redmond, in Washington State. And uh, my partner is in Argentina, in Buenos Aires. And then the rest of the team was kind of like all spread out in different places. And so from, from day one, we were like all you know spread out. The way we, we divided things were like, I was the the you know official CEO slash uh, VP of sales and everything that was customer facing was me, and then everything that was product and engineering and operations and you know delivering the service that we were building was Matthias and the team of engineers that we hired, and um, that's how we started, and uh, and then the first year I was. You know, as much as I respect all the feedback from mentors and advisors and people who have done it, then the other lesson is like, you know, everybody's journey is unique. And sure, you know, the experience of others is super valuable, but there's nothing that will will kind of transfer completely into your own journey. And so there's nothing like uh, like actually doing, and you have to do it, and you have to go and sell it and and if anything speaks uh, the loudest that uh, the loudest loudest feedback that you can get if some from somebody buying your stuff so even though it's like it's very simple right it's like just sign a check slide your credit card uh, it doesn't matter the amount whether it's twenty dollars or a hundred thousand dollars it's an act of trust it's an act of like value recognition it's saying like yes what you have is something that it's helping me and yeah. that's what i was what i was 100 focused on so i was like 100 focused on selling and selling my first deal was a was a big big achievement because i never sold anything in my life before uh at least in, in those terms And yeah. uh, the first customer I got was like almost a, a month after launching, which was a, um, a, a you know a tiny deal, a very tiny deal, but it was proof that somebody was like seeing value in what we're doing. And then a, a few months later, we signed another deal. It was like three orders of magnitude bigger or bigger. It was very large um, in in retrospect, and that was like a was like the, the second proof point. You know, we have here a single developer paying us, you know, $30 per month on our service. It's a self-service experience for that category. And here we have another customer paying us, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars for this, for, for the service itself. Different, different segment, different service as well. It's a more an enterprise deal, but we have like the proof that what we had was useful in the broad spectrum. Like a small startup, a single developer, or a big company with 
legacy and established systems and whatnot, and we were able to deliver on both. So talking about customers and selling, Eugenio, uh, when we're talking about Auth0, what's the business model really behind it so that the people that are listening can can understand? Yeah. So Auth0, first of all, Auth0 is a, it's a service that provides authentication and authorization services for developers. So think about like the everything that powers the, the login box of an application. So when you enter username and password, that goes someplace that tells you, yes, this is a, a valid user or it isn't a valid user. That's what we do. That's in a nutshell what we do. Of course, there's like a lot of nuance and complexity behind it, which makes us, you know, valuable. Things like, um, you know, fraud or, you know, breached, the, uh, breached uh, credentials or uh, multi-factor authentication, contextual authorization, APIs, all, all of that. It's what makes this, the, this domain really complicated. So the business model, it's a, we are a developer-oriented company. So uh, we are very, very similar to what other companies like Twilio for messaging or SendGrid for emails or Stripe for payments. You know, those are like, like examples in the market that do what we do in a different domain, right? So we are an API, easy to use. We are a developer-friendly um, system that takes away all the pain of dealing with authentication and authorization on any platform, whether it's a mobile app or a website or an API or a device or a thermostat on your wall, doesn't matter. Everything needs authentication. We provide you a service that works along those lines. Our business model is a freemium model. So everything starts with a search. If you open Google today and search for authentication, LDAP, iOS, as an example, you know, three keywords that people, developers will normally search, you will find that you will find us because, you know, we spend a considerable amount of resources on content, on training, on tutorials, on tooling for developers. And so they find us. And from there, you create an account with our service. It's a free account, a free trial. So you have a month to test it out with all the features. And then it can progress into three different categories. It could be a free account, which we have. So free forever. And that's, that's a maybe a, um, a limited version of our service, but it's good enough for a large set of uh, developers that are working on a, let's say, on a hobby project or a small project or a startup, you know, that's good for that segment. We have another segment, which is like an upgrade into what we call a self-service customer. And that's somebody paying with a credit card on demand. And that's about 10% of our business. So it's a significant part of our business. And then we have the third category, which is like we call enterprise deals. These are customers that are you know, the, um, you know, Atlassian will be one, the Wall Street Journal will be another one, The Economist is another example, Dow Jones is an example. These are like big, big companies that, of course, have make use of everything we have and very sophisticated use cases on our platform or, you know, immense volumes of users. So you have like millions and millions of users then you need like a, a scale-up version of our service. So, but everything, everything that we that we have 
the business that we built, we built it on this model of a developer, find us, they try us, they like what we, the, what we offer, and then they bring us into these big companies. Developers are our advocates in bigger organizations where they say, look, we, I can spend three months building this myself, or I spent last weekend working on my side project and I had everything running in 10 minutes. And we should be using this service. And that's how we get into, into these businesses. Got it. So um, we were talking before about you guys starting with five and, you know, this was back then and now in 2018, actually, you guys have multiplied by 70 your team and then also by 1,950, the number of customers that you had, because when you started, you got started with about two. Is that right? You had two customers at the time? Yeah, Yeah, we started with two customers first year. Now we have like uh, more than 4,500 customers. Wow. And that, that includes uh, all the, pay- these are all paying customers. We also have 16,000 uh, free accounts. So these are customers that are not paying us, but they are using the, our service in production. And so maybe at low volume, but it's still production. You know, if login doesn't work, it, nothing works. And so, um, which is like a significant number, but, you know, 4,500 Paying customers, we are more than 420 employees at the moment. So, yeah, a big, big growth in in all in all aspects. For sure. And what were some of the strategies that you used to scale up the um, the team, for example, uh, so quickly? Yeah. So w- one of the strategies is like we've been a, always a, a distributed company and an international company. So maybe by you know by initially by the conditions, you know, uh, Matias was living in Argentina and I was living here in, in Washington and I wasn't going to move back to Argentina and he was not going to move to, to the United States. So we decided kind of to embrace the, the reality and make it like a, make it work for us. And so, you know, one great thing is that talent is everywhere. It's, you know, distributed all over the, all over the planet. And so it's not like all people that can code are only in Seattle or only in San Francisco. Uh, Fortunately, there's like amazing talent all over the world. And so we decided to tap into that talent. Uh, Today we have all the 420 employees that I mentioned are in 36 different countries. So we have employees in 36 countries. Of course, we have centers of gravity in in the States, in Washington, in San Francisco, in London, in BA, in Argentina. But we have people working from all places. You know, we have a, a small team in Spain, another team in in Belgium, in Germany, in Japan, in you name it. There's like, um, we sometimes our, our company offsites look like uh, the, you know, the United Nations in our foreign so that was one of the strategies. It's like, you know, we don't need to compete with, um, you know, companies like Microsoft and Google and Facebook and others. In a way, they constrain themselves to, you know, having people all in one place. And we, it's, it's, uh, you have to be deliberate about it. You cannot just expect to work. You know, we invest quite a bit in, in, in technology and in, in culture and in, in our practices to make it work and make it work um, 
efficiently and effectively. But that was one of the strategies. And the second one was like a, maybe a sub-product of this is an international approach. You know, in our business, um, a little bit over 50% of our business is Americas, which is like all, most of it is United States, right? So U.S. The other half of our business happens in Europe and Asia Pacific. So we have like a presence in, you know, we have customers in those regions very, very early on, which gives us the ability to, you know, scale uh, faster because this is like a, it's a problem that is not concentrated just in the U.S. You know, everybody building applications has the need for authentication. And guess what? You know, everybody in the world are building applications, not just people here. Got it. And and how much capital have you guys raised today? So we raised, let's see, the first year, so 2013, which was our first year, we didn't raise any, any money. So it was all self-funded and, you know, bootstrapped and... And, uh, you know, these two customers helped, of course, but it was mostly us. And on the self-funding, you guys have to put a lot of capital up front to really get started? No, really. It was mostly for ourselves, you know, to pay, you know, our expenses. But, of course, it's a, you know, when you when you do that, you're, like, very conscious about, you know, your, your costs and expenses. So we were very, very frugal, you know. If yeah. somebody invited us for lunch uh, and they wanted to, they offered to pay, we would say yes. You know, thank you for paying lunch. <laughs> of course. And I have no, you know, no, I, I'm not embarrassed about about that. He's like, <laughs> sure. Right. We took advantage of um, uh, many programs like the, you know, Bispark from Microsoft, which is very generous. Amazon has another, you know, very similar program for for startups. Yeah. And so, you know, that helped us get started. You know, the first year we raised uh, $2.4 million, and that was um, a, a seed round. And that was like a collection of uh, investors. Most of them were either small investors or angels or, you know, small accelerators or like, you know, like early stage accelerators. Yeah. And But we were lucky too, and... Um, you know, uh, we one of the investors of the seed round was uh, Bessemer Venture Partners, which is like a, you know, yeah. it's a, one of a star VCs in the in the country, and so they invested on on us very early on this uh, seed round. They they saw the and they typically are a Series A investor, so they they normally invest later in later stage. But they like the story. They like the developer angle. They like. Uh, they were investors in Twilio, so they saw all those analogies and similarities in in our go to market, and they liked it. And so that was great because you know Bessemer was a fantastic brand, and having Bessemer as an investor was uh, open a lot of doors. You know, so like, look, you know, it's not just me, and we are we are backed by serious people. That yeah. um, have seen. I, mean, the I, I, I actually, I actually saw that the Eugenia. I was, I was quite impressed with the with the people that you guys have onboarded because you have, like you were saying, Besemer. You also have Trinity Ventures, Meritix, yeah. Sapphire. Yeah. So, so can you tell us uh, how did you? I mean, first of all, like what's the total amount that has been raised to date? If yeah. you can disclose that, and then if you can tell us, like, how did you get in front of these guys? That would be also very interesting too. Um, we raised $110 million. 
over yeah. the course of our history. So the last round was this year, 2018, and it was in, in early 2018, we raised $60 million. So $60 million was the last round, and um, $50 million was everything before that. So between seed round, series A, B, and C, we raised 50. And we have Bessemer. The big, the big lead investors are Bessemer, Trinity Ventures, uh, Meritech, and Sapphire Ventures. Now, we have other smaller investors that have followed their lead. Uh, among them, K9 Ventures, which is amazing. Uh, Manu Kumar is a partner there and great early-stage investor. We have uh, Y Labs, the World Innovation Labs, that's a Japanese-oriented investor. And we, because we wanted to, to expand in Japan, we wanted to partner with somebody that knew the market. So also great. And um, a few other smaller, but those are the, 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 the lead investors. And as we said, you know, we are extremely fortunate to partner with them. Now, I should say also, like, you know, for every every investor that we signed a deal with and we partner with, there's like a uh, hundred others that we pitched at zero and we didn't get, you know, um, we didn't get the deal. Yeah. And that happens too. And so, you know, that's another lesson perhaps is that uh, uh, an investor saying no, it's not necessarily something bad. You know, it's not that you have something wrong or it's just the nature of the business. You know, people, it's like, you need to just uh, try and try again. And, you know, my personal, um, uh, my personal approach is, you know, I go and pitch in front of an investor as a, my mental model is like, it's, um, it's practice. You know, I'm going to go there, I'm going to present, and this is going to be practice for my pitch. And I'm going to learn something new. Right? There's some feedback that will give me that will help me become better at selling the idea and selling, you know, the team and selling the company. Because that's what we do. That's what you do when you raise money from investors. You're selling part of your company at a price. And so um, if, I, if you go with, it, with that mindset, the mindset of, I'm going to get a no for sure, but I'm going to get, you know, essentially free advice, then you're eventually you're, you will be like gladly surprised that somebody says yes. And uh, you're going to get better every time. So look, even the last round, which was a big round and it was with great investors, with a business that was doing well, with all the numbers like growing, you would say like, well, who would not give you money? Well, there's, there's like a lot of people that didn't give us the money. They didn't want to invest in us. And so, uh, you know, that happens. So it's try, 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 try. Yeah, makes makes complete sense. And on the, uh, on the case of Besamer, I mean, I think that one of the good things about, let's say, your cap table is that when... You have someone like Bessemer. It's not like you have to, let's say, you do your seed, then you have to find new investors for the Series A. Then you do the Series A, then you have to find new investors for the Series B because they have like different investment theses and different sizes of funds. I think that having someone yeah. like Bessemer, it's a very helpful so that they can continue to help you push forward on the financing cycles without distracting yourself too much. Did you find this experience yourself with your company? Yeah, so all of our investors 
invested in all the further rounds. So Bessemer was Series A, but they also invested in B, C, and D. Then when we brought in Trinity for B, uh, they invested in C and D, and then and so on and so forth. So I think it's great to to bring like because you know different as you said, different investors have different um, expertise and their the strengths change over time. So they're like great early investors. There's great like growth investors, they're great mezzanine investors and later stage investors. They all have like different expectations and different networks, different um, expertise that you can tap into. So I think it's good to, you know, keeping everybody in the in the journey, it's a, it's a great, um, I see it as a great testament to, you know, what you're building. But uh, but bringing new blood at different stages of the company, it's uh, it's also important because they will give you the things that you need at that stage. You know, that's another lesson. It's like a common mistake is that it's attachment to things that worked well at any particular stage of your company uh, in further stages. So the things that we did in 2013 would definitely not work today. Because we are a different, you know, at a different scale, and we have like thousands of customers, we have like hundreds of employees, so we cannot use the same approach, tools, processes that we had then, because it will fail, you know, terribly. So, as an entrepreneur, you need to be ready to kind of reinvent the company every year, not the core of the company, not the the values, not the mission, not the vision. Not the, you know, your brand promises, you know, what are you doing in the market, but how you do it every year, you throw everything away kind of and rebuild it because, you know, everything uh, changes, will change dramatically. Yeah. And in the capital raising efforts, Eugenio, what was, for example, the difference that you saw from, let's say, raising your 2.4 million back then to now raising your, your, latest, your latest Series D $60 million round? Oh well, sure. You know, the it's a it's it's a different effort, but I would say it was of course much harder. So, uh, series for seed round, we we had like I don't know like twenty investors. So, of which you know Bessemer was one of them, but they came later and they were like the largest. But everybody else was like fifty thousand, seventy five thousand, you know, hundred thousand. It was like even twenty five thousand dollars. So you had to do a lot of work, a lot of pitches, a lot of coffees and a lot of uh, presentations and papers and due diligence and et cetera, just to raise, you know, a million dollars. This time we raised $60 million. We did it in, you know, less than a month. And we just spoke with, yeah, we spoke with a a few, but uh, obviously the, the ratio of effort over dollars raised um, so it, it was, was in less in less than a month, Eugenio. You said the series yeah, D. We, and the that's... Series D, I'm sorry, no. Uh, series D was between the day we we started racing until the day we had a term sheet that we signed was a month, and then maybe another month just to you know the closing details, actually okay. process of closing, right? Until the money was in the bank. But um, it was I mean, a relatively... That's, kind of, that's quick. That's quick. I mean, compared to, let's say, your seat round, like how, what was the timeline of the seat round? 
Well, seed round we were fundraising pretty much all the time. That was like wow. um, um, yeah. a full time job, you know, for some of us. And um, yeah, it's uh, it's it's it was extensive. Yeah, got it. So, so I want to ask you this question: Why don't you like the word exit? I've heard you say that. I don't that. like the word exit. Kind of- yeah, I don't like it because it implies to me there's an implication that there's like an end. Right, it's like the to me the the connotation of exit is like finishing and I'm done, I'm out of here, and uh, you know I don't see. For me, building a business like Zero, it's like a never-ending project. It's like um, um, it's like it's like a work in progress, and it's a permanent work in progress, and so. I do understand the, the the concept for investors, for you know, in other, the, the practicalities of the exit, and but I, I see Zero as a you know my my life project, and so for now, I don't think about an exit. I don't think about for of course I'm not thinking about selling the company at all. You know, I don't spend any time entertaining any any ideas on. Should the company be uh, bought by somebody else? We're not doing anything to optimize that specific outcome. We are building a company that will outlast me or will outlast many of us around here. So that's my my mental model, right? It's like, we want to build a company that is a great company, that it's a great place for people to work for and learn and grow. We want to offer services for in the market that help people achieve what they want. Yeah, I love it. That goes to the saying, Eugenio, that companies are, the best transactions are not from companies that are being sold. They're actually being bought. And yeah, that's when, exactly. you know, a really good transaction happens. So yeah. I completely agree with you there. So I have a, here something that just came to mind. If you had the chance to to go back in time, you know, let's say, uh, you're able to have a chat with your younger self before you launch the uh, the first painful experience or rodeo as an entrepreneur. Yeah. And you were able to tell yourself, you know, like one piece of advice before you launch that business. What would that have been? So one thing I wish I knew before uh, more of, it's actually selling. You know, I had this like all these uh, pre preconceived ideas, all negative, of course, of what selling was. And then over time at Microsoft, I learned that. And then here, even more so, you know, you're always selling, you know, always selling. You're selling an idea, you're selling your product, you're selling yourself. You know, in the early days, you're selling a vision, a conviction of what you believe can be done. And selling, it's a storytelling. And it's a, telling a story that it's credible and that people will buy and that will you know, be excited about it. And I had this preconceived ideas that selling was like, you know, the, the canonical, you know, cartoon of selling, you know, like the used car sales guy type. And it's so wrong. And at, in school, we didn't have any, any training or any advice or any, um, you know, um, correction of that you know, missed and and completely wrong perspective. So selling would say, I would say is one of the first things that I would encourage myself, um, an early version of myself to go into um, 
sooner. Even if it wasn't the profession that I wanted to have, I would have liked to be exposed to the the discipline and the 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 techniques and the and the the profession of selling. That was one. The second one, I think I would I would um, I would get out of the get out in, into the world earlier. You know, I was fortunate when I joined Microsoft, I started traveling a lot. And I, I, I got out of Argentina by, and I started, you know, knowing the world and meeting other people and uh, getting out of that, you know, uh, ecosystem that was very limited. And, and so I wish I had done that before because, you know, the, the first time I, I flew for business reasons, I was like, I don't know, 25 or so, yeah. you know, um, it was later. So I wish I had, I had had that experience beforehand. Got it. Got it. Well, that, that makes a complete sense. So what is the best way for folks that are listening to reach out and say hi, Eugenio? Um, well, you can, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm pretty um, active on Twitter. It's Eugenio, Eugenio underscore Pace. Or you can find me through the All Zero account as well, A U T H, and the number zero. I have a blog as well. So if you go to eugeniop.com, that's my personal blog. And uh, I would say those are, I'm, I'm pretty active on those forums. So you can reach me out there. Wonderful. Well, this has been a pleasure, Eugenio. Thank you so much for being part of the show today. Excellent. It's been a, it's been a real pleasure talking with you, Alejandro. And uh, look forward to uh, um, an opportunity in the future. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.